with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4, we'll read verse 6 through 21. Here is the infallible, inspired, and errant Word of God. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. Because we have become spectacles to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil, working with our hands. When we were reviled, we blessed. When we were persecuted, we endure. When we were slandered, we try to reconcile. We have become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved brethren and children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere and in every church. Now some of you have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come with you at you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's ask God's help to understand. And Father, we pray that you would take these wondrous words, and that you would teach them to us, your servants. This morning you would cultivate in our hearts that longing for your word which we have sung about from Psalm 119. That we would, we would value your word and that we would long to be corrected by your word and instructed by your word and shaped by it. So that all of our attitudes, thoughts, emotions and desires would be in conformity with your word. So Lord, to this end, send forth your Holy Spirit to open up our eyes and to cause these words to be applied to the depths of our hearts that we may serve you obediently. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, coming to the end of a long semester myself, I have a lot of things still rattling around, probably aimlessly in my mind, studying a lot of communication theories this past semester. And one of them that I encountered kind of stands out in my thinking here as we approach this particular passage, uh, there is a fairly well-known communication theory that compares relationships to kind of like peeling an onion. That we have our public face as individuals, which would correspond to the outer layer of the onion. And that's what we uh, sort of project to people around us. And we have sort of superficial surface level relationships. But what 
trust grows between two people, or let's say people within a group, uh, that onion is sort of peeled back. And the more you peel back the layers through self-disclosure and talking and sharing experiences, the inner person begins to emerge. And sometimes it's different than the outer person. Sometimes it's different than the face that we publicly show to people. But it's that kind of analogy of peeling back an onion that that fits with what Paul has done here. Because, as you well know, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul has been taking the problem at Corinth, which is kind of like an onion. Publicly, it's factionalism. Publicly, it's factionalism. You remember back in chapter 1 that he points out the problem. He says that he knows, he has been informed, uh, that there are corals. Now, Paul attacks this problem because it's like a battery acid corroding the church inside out. From a number of different angles, he takes on this problem of the corrosive effects and problem of factionalism. He says it's contrary to the message of the cross. He says it's inconsistent with the low status that they have. He says not many of them were noble or wise or mighty that were called into the kingdom of God. He exposes the wisdom that undergirds this philosophy of factionalism within the church and exposes it as worldly. He points out that the kind of pastor who provokes this and encourages it and and tries to get people to line up on his team and and to use church as an opportunity to gather a following, he says that kind of pastor is somebody who's going to come under God's judgment at the end of the the age. And then finally, in the passage just before ours, he points out what real pastors are like. So that this factionalism will sort of die out as they begin to see what real godly ministers are to look like. And they're not kings, and they're not high-profile celebrities. They're not big ego personality types. They're just servants. Well, you see, Paul has taken this problem and like an onion, just continued to peel off the layers. Until now, uh, he gets to the inner core of the problem. And here Paul diagnoses the problems within the church. And he says, if we can boil down the problems in the church to just one word, it's this. Pride. Pride. Arrogance is causing all of the division, the quarrels, the conflicts, the factionalism within the church. And Paul calls it out here as the peculiar problem of this Corinthian church. Throughout this passage, he attacks the problem of pride from a whole series of different angles. And we'll see that in a moment. Uh, This passage is really filled with a lot of exhortation. It's filled with a lot of law. It's filled with a lot of bad medicine. Bad tasting kinds of medicine. I mean, the kind of medicine, not bad in of itself because they're inspired words, but it's the kind of medicine that, that when you take it, sometimes doesn't taste good going down. And so because of that, I want to begin on a positive note. And there is a very profound positive note within uh, the flow of uh, this very thoroughgoing exhortation here. And you find it tucked away here in verses 14 and 15. Sort of set this up. You can see from roughly... uh, Verse 7 on, Paul has been exposing the arrogance, the conceit, uh, the problems that are underlying this factionalism. And and he finally transitions at verse 14, and he says something very significant. He says, I don't write these things to shame you. 
very interesting to say, <clears throat> he's basically exposed them as a bunch of proud, boastful, arrogant people, and then he stops and he says, but I want you to know something, I really love you. And that's not irony. That's not double talk. Because what he's been doing is exposing the problems, the attitudes, the desires, the motivations. He says, those things are bad. I'm not trying to humiliate you as individuals and make you feel as if you are abnormal and worthless, crazy people. I'm getting you to see that the kinds of things that are governing your life are sinful. And because I love you as my children now, and that's the metaphor I want to work with, that is the positive foundation of this entire passage. He says, I'm not trying to rattle your cages for the purpose of making you feel about an inch high. I am doing this because, he goes on in verse 14, say, I'm admonishing you as my beloved children. You see, he draws out this metaphor of him being the father. He goes on in verse 15 to say, For if you have had countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. You see, the positive note in this passage is that Paul puts the uh, admonition to, uh, to throw out pride and arrogance and replace it with humility. He places that admonition on the foundation of the gospel. You can clearly see the gospel note there as he says that I have become your father through the gospel. And of course that calls to mind the images that we've already looked at repeatedly as we've worked through these first few chapters of Paul. As he comes into Corinth, he began his ministry by preaching. He went into the synagogues at Corinth and for uh, many Sabbaths in a row, he simply stood at the front of the auditorium with his Old Testament Bible open and he expounded Christ to them from the Old Testament Scriptures. And when the Jews had finally had enough of Paul's preaching about Jesus Christ and they gave him the bums rush out of the synagogue, he went right next door to the house of Crispus and he set up a podium there, and began to do what? Expound the Word of God. And so when Paul says here uh, that he has become their father in Jesus Christ through the Gospel, what he is saying is that God has used me as his instrument, his privileged instrument, to proclaim the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why you were attracted to me was not because I was some magnetic, charismatic personality who naturally sort of draws people according to the laws of attraction, Uh, You came to uh, the church in Corinth because there the word of God was sounding out. There the voice of Jesus Christ uh, was reverberating throughout the community as the gospel was being proclaimed and the scriptures being expounded. But you see what he's done here by doing that is he is saying, I have not duped you or tricked you into becoming a Christian. I have not, uh, I have not used any strategies or tricks or devices to get you to, uh, to sort of hang on my every word. He says, the reason why you are here at all is because Jesus Christ has died for your sins. And Jesus Christ has called you through the power of His voice and the preaching of the Word by the application of the Holy Spirit, by God's sovereign grace, has called you into a relationship with Himself. Now, that's absolutely foundational to the rest of what Paul is going to say here. It really kind of fits at the heart of the passage if you see this uh, verses 6 through 21 as being the length of this passage. It's kind of at the heart. At the heart of the passage is this note of gospel. 
Now, why make that the foundation? And we know it is, because if you would just look at the connection of ideas between verses 15 and 16, you can see, very clearly, Paul is basing his admonition on gospel. Because he's just told them in verse 15, he says, uh, I have become your father in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And then he says in verse 16, therefore. Therefore. Based upon that, he says, I exhort you, be imitators of me. See, uh, the admonition flows out of the gospel. Now, what I'm about to say is the same thing that you've probably heard from me so many times, you're tired of listening to it. It's kind of like the Department of Redundancy Department. The basis of obedience is gratitude. The basis of obedience is gratitude. Not brownie points with God, not a better, more successful life, although that, that may be nice. The basis of obedience to Christ's commandments is gratitude. It's because Jesus Christ has died for our sin. He has absorbed the divine wrath. He has taken away our guilt. He has washed away the pollution. He has forgiven our sins. He's given us His righteousness. He's recreated us into His image by the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. And so the only possible response to that is what? It's gratitude. It's to say thank you to the Lord through obedience. Through a life of conformity to the Scriptures. Now that's not new, but it's in need of repetition. The Gospel is in need of perpetual repetition. And I know that's true because of the words of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper which is a picture of the gospel. And Jesus says, you do this in remembrance of me. You see, we have this strange problem. We forget Christ. We forget the gospel. We forget to be grateful. We forget to say thank you. We forget to be thrilled at the knowledge of God's grace. And and when that happens, you can see it boastfulness and pride and self-righteousness and self-reliance and forgetfulness of God and pursuit of our own desires begin to dominate our vision so that all we can see as far as the horizon goes is me and my desires wrapped up in a big bow. That becomes the pursuit of our life. And Paul says this is the problem with you Corinthians. Is that you have become boastful and proud and arrogant because you have forgotten about Jesus Christ. You have forgotten about the foundational fact The only reason why you're in the church in the first place is not because you followed some charismatic leader, but because Jesus Christ opened your eyes to the preaching of the gospel and brought you into his kingdom. Now, you really can't get anything out of this passage this morning, people of God, unless that is the first thing that you grasp. That gospel is the foundation of grateful obedience. That's what Paul proclaims. He says, I'm not trying to shame you. And and if any of us this morning fall into the category of the kinds of people that need to be rebuked, and I would say that to everybody here, because we're all proud. At the end of the day, uh, there's pride in the heart of every person. Then we have to read that verse 14 and, and think to ourselves, look, there's a lot of hard things that have to be said here in this passage. There's a lot of hard things that you have to accept this morning. There's a lot of bad tasting medicine that we all have to swallow today. But you know, you can do that if you read these words to you. I don't write these things, verse 14, to shame you. This is not about humiliation. 
This is not like trying to squash a bug under your toe. He says, I do this because I love you. I'm admonishing you as your children. So that's the way you're to take this, uh, this admonition here this morning, through that frame, through that lens. God is speaking to me this morning because He has redeemed me with Christ's precious blood and I need to be in tune with His commandments. So what does Paul say? We've built it up enough. Let's look at the admonition that flows out of this passage. The substance of Paul's admonition is contained in verse 16. It's not terribly cutting, though. I'll admit that. He says, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. That is literally to mimic me. Now, that sounds very strange to us. That a man would be saying, Hey, do what I do. But in fact, you find Paul doing that very frequently in the New Testament letters. He uh, repeatedly admonishes Christians to be like him, to follow him. And you say, well, is Paul an egomaniac? Well, of course he's not an egomaniac. Just read the passage, uh, the verses right before us. It's not about him. What he's saying is is that I have the mind of Christ. I have been instructed according to what Jesus Christ wants of me and his people. And he says, to the best of my ability, I am modeling that in my life. And if you want to know what it is to follow Jesus Christ, he has the boldness and temerity to say, follow me. And, and as we look at these, these verses before this admonition here, and this is what Paul means, by the way, when he says, be imitators of me, I just start working your way from verse 9 forward and you see what it means to follow Paul. It's a life of selfless, selfless sacrifice. Not pride. Not reaching for power. Not turning scars into stars. It's a life of selfless, humble service. So when Paul says here in verse 16, this is the point that I want us to get right now. When Paul says in verse 16... Be imitators of me. He is saying, be humble. Be humble. Now to dig into that point a little bit more, let's work our way back up to verse 6. We begin to see the argument for Paul's humility and this central admonition of imitation. In verse 6, you see the Apostle Paul says there, These things, brethren, I figuratively apply to myself. And Apollos for your sakes. These things. You say, well, what in the world are these things? Well, almost all scholars agree that the these things refers back at least to verse 5 of chapter 3, where Paul says of himself and Apollos that they are just servants. Literally table waiters. Literally table waiters. You go forward in the passage, and he's described as a worker. A plantation worker. is a carpenter. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he calls himself servant. This time the word there is a little bit different. We talked about this before. It was used often of slaves who rowed the boats in the depths of those big hulking ships that uh, used to cruise the Mediterranean. And then he says he was a steward of the mystery of God. A slave who was assigned certain responsibilities. Now, that's what Paul is referring to when he gets to verse 6. He's saying, these things I have figuratively applied to myself. Is he literally a a, a bond slave uh, on a chain gang somewhere? No. Paul's saying, I'm taking these images of subservience. Everybody in your culture, everybody in Greco-Roman culture would have agreed that these words that he's applied to himself, laborer, servant, 
the other word for servant, uh, steward. Everybody would have agreed that these are uh, words which would describe people who perform menial tasks. Uh, people who were servants, people who were subservient, people who were at the bottom level of society. See, the Apostle Paul is not using grandiose, pompous words to apply to himself and his ministry. He says, if you want to understand the, the essence of, of the ministry of Jesus Christ, it's to be a servant. It's to be subservient. We'll get in a little bit later the kind of names that he uses to describe himself. They're so shocking. But, uh, you know, that's what he is doing here. He says, these things I'm applying to myself. Paulus and I have lived out this kind of lifestyle before you. And he says, going on into verse 6, we've done it for your sake so that in us you may learn not to do what? Exceed what is written. That's the beginning of forming the substance of Paul's admonition here. He says that you will learn not to go beyond what is written. That is a very important word there. What is written. It's used five times already in the book of Corinthians. Every time that word is used, immediately following it is a quotation from Old Testament Scripture. In fact... Every time that word is used in the New Testament, it is used 30 times. Every single time it is followed by an Old Testament quotation of Scripture. Now put that together. He says, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you would learn not to exceed what is written. What Paul is saying is that we have lived out obedience to the Scripture in such a way that you could see in us what God requires of you in His Word. He has lived out the faith, he and Apollos, in such a way that people could simply look at his life and say, that's what God requires of me. Now, one passage that this may refer to is found at the end of chapter 1, verse 31. This may be one of the scriptures that Paul has in mind. He says, don't go beyond what is written. Verse 31 says, uh, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, Boast in the Lord. Now that's a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 9. Just prior to Jeremiah saying those words, he said this, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. And now comes your quotation. But if a man boasts, let him boast in the Lord. I believe that's what the Apostle Paul has on his mind here when he admonishes these arrogant Corinthians. He says, don't go beyond what is written. What the Word of God says, what it commands of you, is to not boast in your wisdom, to not boast in your might, and to not boast in your riches, and to not boast in yourself and your resources. What God commands of you, every single Christian, is to boast not in self, but in the Lord. 
Not in my sufficiency, but in his eternal self-sufficiency. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying, by putting it this way, and it's a very carefully crafted statement, he's saying, don't be arrogant. Because God's word commands you not to be arrogant. God's word forbids you to boast in yourself. It's the boast in him. And he makes that very clear in the very next statement. When he says, I say this again so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one another. Pride. Pride and arrogance. The big problems in the Corinthian church. This word arrogant here at the end of verse 6 is used seven times in the New Testament. And six of the times are in 1 Corinthians. Three of those times are in this chapter. If you have your Bibles open, you can see it's used again in chapter uh, 5, verse 2. You split the page over. It says, you have become arrogant. A couple chapters over. 8-1. He says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. And knowledge makes arrogant. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, you see it there too. He says, If I speak with tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And then he goes on to talk about love and not being arrogant in verse 4. You see, uh, Paul has diagnosed the, 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 the problem in this church. If you peel back the Corinthian church like, like layers of an onion... Here's what you'd find out. Just full of a bunch of proud, arrogant people who have no basis of being proud and arrogant, but are so filled with pride that they will use whatever leverage they have to tear down, to hurt people with words and actions and attitudes. Now, before we get into the admonition section of this, I want us to, to feel the force of the admonition because it's a very important admonition against pride and arrogance. If you read the, the, the scriptures, uh, there are a lot of admonitions against this because there's a lot of bad things that go with being proud. I'll just give you three. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. The writer says, There are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to the Lord. Guess what is the first one on the list? Pride. Those who have haughty eyes. Probably a verse you know very well because you've memorized it since the time you were a small child. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, the haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. You see what pride leads to is pride leads to destruction. You show me somebody's life who's a Christian, which is on the brink of absolutely unraveling at the seams because of their sin. I'll show you somebody who is proud. Unwilling to be taught by the Scriptures. Unwilling to be corrected in their attitudes, emotions, and desires, the things that they long for. And they have become, uh, they've become hardened in heart against the truth because they're pride. How do you know if you're proud? Well, because... You don't like to hear any admonitions. You don't like to hear any criticism. You don't like to receive any instruction. That is a proud person. When you think you have got it all figured out, you're in trouble. And that's what these Corinthians thought. Blessed with all kinds of spiritual blessings. 
Blessed with all kinds of spiritual gifts. The laundry list is long in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 about all the different kinds of spiritual gifts that they had. And yet, because they had all of these blessings, they became arrogant. Paul says, or rather the Proverbs say, Pride goes before destruction. The last thing to know about pride is that God opposes the proud. That's what James says in James chapter 4. So the question that we have to face now is, how do we fight it? How do we fight it? How do we deal uh, with pride? I think Paul does a tremendous job here in in verse uh, 7 and following, particularly uh, as he works through his own biography. We're going to work through those verses now and, and apply Paul's admonition not to grow proud, not to be arrogant. Beginning with verse 7 on, we can see here that Paul helps us kind of understand how to apply this admonition. And the very foundational principle that Paul sets forth here for fighting uh, arrogance and and really the foundation of humility is that you have to realize that anything that you have in your life is a gift. Anything you have in your life is a gift. Verse 7 says, who regards you as superior? He says, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have in your life that you did not receive? If you have any uh, physical ability, if you have any skill, if you have any mental aptitudes, if you have any artistic ability, if you have any station in life, if you have anything good in your life, what Paul is saying is, you have it not because you're better, not because you worked harder, not because you're more savvy. He says, you have it because God gave it to you. He says, what do you have that's good that you weren't given? You see, the foundation that you build a humble life on is the acknowledgement that every single thing you have is something that God gave you that you are not entitled to. That may be a good family. That may be a good place to live. That may be material possessions. That may be good looks. That may be opportunities that other people don't get. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is that's good, Paul is saying here, you didn't earn it. God gave it to you. That is the foundation of humility. If it's been given to you, you have no business flaunting it in other people's faces and using it as a means to drive a wedge between you and other people so you can get ahead in life. And I know that's what Paul means because the rest of the sentence finishes off the idea. Verse 7 he says, If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not? You see, it's obviously implied here that people who receive gifts should not be arrogant. They should be humble. They should be able to say, Hey, I can't take any credit for this. I can't take any credit for this. You know, they don't go around fist pumping into the air, calling all kinds of attention to themselves, standing right in the middle of the spotlight and just soaking it up. It's not American Idol. People who have a proper self-understanding are the kind of people who say, I don't care what it is, and I may stand head and shoulders above everybody else around me. Whatever it is that I excel at is simply mine because God gave it to me. That's the foundation of humility. When Paul says, be imitators of me, the first way that we learn how to do that is to realize that God has given us everything that we have. And if God's given it to you, then you have no business using it to put other people down with, make them ashamed feeling, because you have it. 
and to be boastful. The second part of uh, living this humble life and not being arrogant is to emulate Paul's example by being willing to endure hardships. You see, Paul includes this information in here about himself, contrasting himself to the Corinthians for the very purpose of showing uh, that this is what it is to imitate him and this is what it is to live a humble life. Verse 10, he says, We are fools for Christ's sake. We are fools for Christ's sake. But he says, You are prudent. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. You read that verse and you realize that everything that should be up is down. Everything that should be down is up. Here he is, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here he is, one who receives inspired written revelation. Here he is, one who had the privilege of meeting Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus. Here he is, the one who sees visions and dreams and receives all kinds of immediate uh, divine direction in his life. Tell him to go here. Tell him to go to Macedon. Tell him to come to Corinth. Tell him to go to uh, Philippi. Tell him to go to Jerusalem. All the time, God is working in him, talking to him, uh, giving him direction. And and yet the problem with Paul is that none of it ever seems to make him have a better life. He's a fool. He's weak. He's not distinguished in the eyes of the world. And here on the other hand are these Corinthians who were not noble, who were not wise, who were not mighty, who were not the upper echelon of society. They come to Christ and now they become filled with arrogance and pride. There's something wrong with the situation. Yet the Apostle Paul says he's not bitter about it. The whole way that this emerges from the text is if to say... He's enduring the shame in humility. That's what it is to follow Paul. It is whatever circumstances in your life that you think are contrary to how they should be. So the person that you stand in contrast with, you think doesn't deserve what he has, and you deserve what he has, or she has, yet the person who is imitating Paul is the kind of person who says, I can endure this through Christ. You know, there's a lot of things in life that don't seem fair. Now, there's a lot of um, homespun admonition that you'll hear as you grow up. Uh, Work hard, be thrifty, you'll get ahead in life. (laughs) There's plenty of people who work hard and are thrifty and never get anywhere in life. Right? That's called providence. God assigns you a lot in life. And the hard thing is, am I willing to... Am I willing to submit? Paul here, an apostle, an enormously intellectually talented individual who could have been earning top dollar at any corporation he wanted to in the ancient world, was an apostle out of submissiveness to Jesus Christ. And he is despised, considered a fool, weak and without honor, in contrast to people who are basically far below his intellectual capabilities. Imitating Paul is learning to accept humbly the hardships. It's also being willing to accept humiliation. Notice how he spells out his humiliation here in 12 and 13. He says, we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. You see that? Imitating Paul is being willing to accept humiliation. Working with his hands. 
reviled, persecuted, slandered. And by the way, I do believe that what Apostle Paul is talking about here is these things are not happening from outside in the world for the most part. They're happening within the church and within the context of the covenant. Either the Jews or Christians are treating him with contempt. The very people who are supposed to be honoring, the very people who are supposed to be helpful, the very people who are supposed to be on his side, are the very people who are persecuting, slandering, and reviling. Now, what does Paul do? Does he get bitter? Does he file a complaint? No, he accepts it in humility. He says, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we conciliate. In other words, we turn the cheek. He's not gouging out eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He's being proactive. And you know, the the very interesting thing here is that he is doing this to the very people, most likely, that he has helped. I gotta say, in my years of pastoral experience, either from my own life or watching other pastors, it almost inevitably occurs that the very people that pastors go out of their way to help sometimes are the very people who turn on them. We were warned about that in one of our counseling classes in seminary. The, pa- the, the teacher uh, liked to often say, Be careful, because sometimes sheep have very sharp teeth. That's not to put anybody down. It's just to realize this is the nature of the situation. In a fallen world, dealing with fallen people, this is how things work. And what the Apostle Paul says, when he says, imitate me, he is saying, this is what you should be like. He's not saying, this is a, this is a good remedy for pastors. He's not saying, here, this, this, this message is for you pastors here, because we all know that you tend to be uh, inflated in your ego, puffed up, arrogant, and proud kind of people, because you have a little bit more education than others. He says, this is what you are to do. He says, brothers, I exhort you to imitate me. What does he do? He accepts humiliation. He accepts humiliation. Now that is, like I said before, bad-tasting medicine. So how do you endure it? How do you endure the humiliation How do you accept uh, trying providential circumstances in humility? Well, thirdly, you do that and you imitate Paul by grasping your identity. Clearly, Paul has internalized his identity. Verse 9, he says, I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world. That word spectacle there is the same word that we get our English word theater from. It's to be on the stage, in front of everybody, and having people look at your entire life, top to bottom, left to right, and to see who you are and how you live, and to point out every little flaw, every little problem, every little detail. He says, that's what I am. I'm a spectacle. People stare at me. It's kind of like going to the zoo and you watch the monkey exhibit. I've never understood this, but it always seems that there's always the biggest crowds around the monkey exhibit. And maybe because they're very entertaining. I don't know, but they just kind of sit there. And, and they scratch their head and they play and they eat and 
They stare at the trees, and people seem to be utterly fascinated at the monkeys, monkey exhibit and the, the big apes. They're just going to sit there. and they, I don't know. They don't do anything, but people like it. That's what Paul says. We're kind of like the monkey exhibit at the zoo. People look at us. That's what we are. We are spectacles. That's what you are if you are a Christian. You are a spectacle. The world looks at you. And the world is constantly scrutinizing you to see if you're going to be a hypocrite. Whether you're going to live up to being a Christian. Whether you're going to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Whether you're going to follow through on doing the things that Jesus commands of you. And when you don't, here comes the reviling. Here comes the persecution. And oftentimes when you do, here comes the persecution. Because now you say, oh, you're just so good. What the Apostle Paul has done is he's internalized his identity. He says, we are apostles, men who have been condemned to death, and we are a spectacle. I understand that's who I am. That's part of the territory, he says. But then now notice this last part of his identity that he has internalized as well. is the latter part of verse 13. He says, we have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. He has internalized his identity. We have become scum of the world. Can you imagine an apostle saying that about himself? Hi, by the way, I'm scum of the world. Nice to meet you, scum of the world. I'm dregs of society. Yesterday, uh, I, I made a, a big pot of chili for UFC night. I tend to like to have that on when I watch the fights. I like to have a big old pot of chili. And I made a big mistake. Um, and I didn't tell people about it until after you ate it. But I, I scorched the bottom a little bit. And I forgot about them. And I, I was doing some work. And then I came back in. And I smelled the smell. I go, oh, no, I ruined dinner for tonight. Well, it wasn't too bad. It was just a little bit. But when it scorches on the bottom of the pan, it hardens. And so after all the chili was gone last night, I looked inside there, and by the way, everybody ate it. They ate it all up. And at the bottom of the pan, there was the scorched chili. Dark, crusty, black, uh, barnacle-looking thing. And you have to put water on it and soap and let it soak and then scrape it off. That's what scum of the earth is, literally. It's something you scrape off the bottom. That's what Paul says he is. He's something that's scraped off. He's like gum on the bottom of your shoe. You ever walk down the road and you stepped on a piece of gum unwittingly and every step you take goes squish, 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 squish. That's what Paul, he says you might as well, we're just gum on the bottom of the shoe. That's what we are. Now, if you think about that and you internalize that and you say, this is my identity, how will that help you endure life's trials and life's humbling circumstances? You know, one reason why we don't walk around humble and one reason why we feign to be proud and to be arrogant is because our ego literally just cannot handle a properly internalized sense of self. We want grandiose ideas about who we are. We want to have uh, these ideas that everybody perceives us in these wonderful, positive ways. We're looked at as strong and vibrant and intellectual and leaders and this and that and the other. And what the Apostle Paul says, this is how you uh, deal with the hard knocks of life. You internalize your identity. We are scum of the world, dregs of all things. In other words, he's saying, I am not entitled to anything but the kind of treatment that I receive. 
You know, when you understand who you are, that you are a fallen sinner who lives in a fallen world, you're much more prepared to handle life and humility. We don't deserve anything. Nothing. That's what Paul is saying. We deserve nothing. How did they treat Jesus? How did they treat Jesus? As infuriating as it is to read the gospel narratives and to, and to read about what the soldiers and the Jews did to Jesus Christ, hitting him on the head, mashing uh, thorns in his, in his skull, it, it, it was just of a piece with the whole way he had been treated the entire time he was on earth. And, and yet sometimes we have, and Jesus even said to his disciples back then, he says, beware of the fact that the servant is not above his master. But somehow we've believed that we're entitled to so much more. Paul has internalized those words of Christ. The servant is not above the master. If they despised and abused and ridiculed and mocked and treated like dirt, the incarnate Son of God, how much more do we deserve that? That's the bad medicine. But Paul gives it here to the Corinthians because it's the cure. It's the cure to the problems in the church. It's the cure to factionalism. It's the, it's the cure to lovelessness. It's the cure to people biting and devouring each other. It's the cure to people not loving them, their neighbor as themselves. It's the cure to, to a church that's filled with gossip. It's the cure to a church that's full of coldness of heart. It's to internalize your idea. It's to understand who you are in Jesus Christ, but at the same time understand that you are a sinner in a fallen world and you're not deserving of exalted treatment. The response of a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ is to not be arrogant. It's to rejoice in the gospel and realize that our hopes and our dreams and our aspirations are not fulfilled now. They're in Christ. Two things in application quickly. How do we do this? We work through all these things. Two more things I would just say is observe live models of instruction. That's what Paul says in verse 17. Uh, he says, be imitators of me. And then immediately in verse 17, he says, For this reason I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, that he will remind you of my ways. We need life models and instruction to help us understand how to live. It's good for everybody to find somebody who they think has, uh, by all standards, uh, modeled what it means to balance this stuff out, to live a Christian life as... As, uh, to the best of their ability find people like that watch how they live learn from people who, are, who have been through, uh, through the trials of sin and temptation the struggles of this life live models of instruction help us understand how to imitate the models set out here the second thing that I see in this passage is the, the note that it ends on uh, verse 21 when he says what do you desire shall I come at you with a rod Shall I come with you, Rob? The symbol of discipline and authority. We need to feel the pressure of discipline. It's, it's, it's not accidental that Paul, at the end of a unit, when he has been attacking factionalism, division, and jealousies, and quarrels, and strife, and arrogance, and pride in the church, ends it with the punctuation mark of, of the threat of discipline. Do I need to come to you with a rod? Because we need to feel that sting of rebuke, that fear of discipline, the fear of the divine. So the fear of the Lord we depart from evil. 
We need to feel the pressure of God's discipline upon us. People have got this morning, if you've learned anything in, term, in terms of what it means to, to not be proud and arrogant, to lead a humble life, there's this, this sort of threat of discipline, the specter of discipline and authority hangs over that to say, you know what? You're a Christian. This is how you're supposed to act. And if you, if you continually refuse to follow what God says, if you continually refuse to be obstinate and refuse to submit to Christ's authority mediated through the Scripture, then God is going to come at you with that rod of discipline. Just like the Word of God says, who the Lord loves, He chastens. Who the Lord loves, He chastens. I pray that that's not anybody here. I pray that that's not anybody here, but we need to hear it in that way. That, it, that God means business when He calls us to this life. You need to hear the warning. Now Paul gives us the model here then. Here's the model. It's the same thing that Jesus gave His disciples and is recorded in the Scriptures. And we need to hear it. If we're to be Christians, if we're to live a grateful life, it's the model that Jesus gave. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and serve Him. Let's pray.